This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, says inflation isn't going away just yet. I'm afraid inflation may not go away that quickly. And Ken Griffin, founder and CEO at Citadel, says the U.S. needs to get its economic house in order. We're heading into a presidential election. It's really hard for politicians on either side of the aisle to do what we need to do, which is to rein in our deficit spending. And U.S. Ambassador to Japan Rahm Emanuel says China is desperate for investment. Because he has made a series of economic decisions uh, and political decisions arresting people where capital is fleeing. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. And President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping, they did hold that long, intense, four-hour face-to-face meeting this past week. That's right, Denise. The leaders of the world's two largest superpowers sat down in San Francisco on Wednesday. And at that solo news conference afterwards, President Biden said the U.S. and China have agreed to reestablish key ties. We're reassuming military-to-military contacts, direct contacts. The president saying misunderstandings and accidents happen when communication channels are closed. So President Biden is continuing to highlight the importance of that communication. And here's how he put it with business leaders in San Francisco a day after his meeting with China Xi Jinping. Stable relationship between the world's two largest economies is not merely good for the two economies, but for the world. A stable relationship. It's good for everyone. And as President Biden Ed stresses the need for stability, we caught up with Ram Emanuel. He's U.S. Ambassador to Japan on the sidelines of the APEC summit. And Denise Emanuel says China is desperate for investment right now. Yeah, he said that repeatedly. And here's Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern with the ambassador the day after the Biden-Xi summit. Let's listen in. This was a uh, warming of ties. The relationship almost couldn't get any worse than where it was. But you've been quite critical of China. In one of your tweets, you talked about the rumors of the disappearance of top officials. And you said, who's going to win this unemployment race, China's youth or Xi's cabinet? Given that criticism, and the White House was trying to pave a way for this visit, did they tell you to tone down some of your social media posts? Do I posts? look like I'm toned down? Uh, I mean, I've tell been me. very clear about Fukushima, that uh, China continues to fish in Japan's water even though they're banning that fish in clear violation of uh, trade agreements. I mean, to me, the big point here, and I think that the most important point is nobody's under any illusion. I thought what was very interesting in the meeting is after the meeting, President Xi decided to have a uh, dinner with a bunch of American CEOs who gave him a standing ovation. I was with President Biden where he had a, uh, a reception and there were world leaders from the entire region, a number of country heads of states. Prime Minister Kishida was there, as was uh, uh, President Marcos of the Philippines was there. And I think that tell- is a telling sign to split screen. President Xi is desperate for American investment because he has made a series of economic decisions uh, and political decisions arresting people where capital is fleeing. The, cor- the co- uh, coin of the realm for the United States, we have allies. We have friends, and they want to be aligned with us. The fact that there were foreign leaders with the president here at the APEC conference and American business CEOs 
who literally have their uh, R&D, their intellectual property, stolen from them, has decided to give President Xi a standing ovation. And I think that is a telling sign, that split screen, because I tell you who's got strength and who's got vulnerabilities. Well, this is another criticism you've pointed to China on your social media posts. You're very prolific on Twitter. You said I can only type so many words. You said, it's, <laughs> you said lying and cheating is the modus operandi mm. when it comes to doing business in China. Mm. Was it wrong for these executives to show up and some of them paying as Mark, uh, Mike Gallagher of uh, the Republican chair of the China Select well, well, Committee says $40,000 to sit yeah. at Xi Jinping's let table? Let me just say, uh, well, that may be a telling sign of how desperate China is for investments. Let me say this uh, on that point. One, I cannot tell you as a chief of staff how many times the CEO came in to my office and said, I have to give away all my research and development. There's intellectual property theft. There's, cat, you know, there's basically IP theft going on, and there's spying going on. And then you say, okay, let's file a WTO World Trade Organization complaint. They say, oh, I don't want to do that. So to me, we as taxpayers fund that research and development. We have a say in that research and development. The fact that you're giving away America's uh, future and you just have to give it away, that's not in our interest. It wasn't wrong for them to show up, but you should have no rose-colored glasses. Number two, over the last 30 years, definitely in the last 20 years, too much of America's national, uh, security or relationship with China was dominated by commercial interests and not by our national security. It has to be brought into balance. And number well, has three- Has the West learned its lesson well, from Russia? That, well, I think under President Biden, absolutely. Clear-eyed about it. And number three, let me take one other point. It's ambassador to, uh, for the United States to Japan. There are three major companies in the world that produce machines that are essential for semiconductors. Canon, Tokyo Electron, ASML in, in uh, Holland. Three months ago, it was identified that there was a spy stealing trade secrets and economic secrets, patent secrets from ASML. Not Canon, not Tokyo Electron, not another country except for China. Now, we can't allow an economic system based on trust and a rule of law to operate where one country is stealing intellectual property constantly. That is happening across the United across. So should this the, administration be doing more? No, no, they are doing more. You wouldn't be you and I aren't having this in the past. All those problems, this is a mistake, bipartisan mistake. Those problems got swept under the rug. You're gonna have the dialogue the president established yesterday. We're gonna be honest with each other, we're gonna tell each other where there are lines. In the past, those type of things by CEOs in America got swept under the rug because of the lure of a size of the market of China. That will not happen anymore. The enforcement of the rules of law will happen, and it's gonna be clear. There will be commercial trade, but it will not be one where you get to steal and we all get to, or, or get to subsidize and destroy a market of the United States or a market of Japan or a market of the EU, and we actually turn the other cheek. You're gonna, if you're gonna be part of the international system, you're gonna abide by the international system. And the president has been clear, which is why, again, I go back to this, we have allies and friends, because everybody knows between rules or raw exercise of power, rules have a seductive lure, because that is fear. And people do not want to live in a system where intellectual property theft, subsidizing of industries, get to destroy other countries' economic independence and sovereignty. What do you make of the president, though, ending his press conference on the way out, gets this shouted question. He says Xi Jinping <laughs> is a dictator. Yeah. Well, he's, a, he's stuck by what his view is. I think the evidence is pretty clear uh, based on what's going on in China. And I think that the, that doesn't mean you don't have a conversation, as he did. And I do think one other thing that I think is really, really important. 
when you look at Russia's war in, uh, in and on Ukraine, you look at uh, Hamas's terrorism and the conflict in the Middle East. Now, in all the conflicts around, it's better to have conversations. And why? Because you and I don't know, nobody knows, where does deterrence end and provocation begin? So it's better to have a meeting of the minds, better to have a dialogue, better to have established lines of communication. You'll have differences. Doesn't mean you were not gonna have differences, mm -hmm. but you know who to talk to each other, you know whether you can trust the other person's word. That has always been the case. So in the context of right now, better that that happened, better that we have a way of knowing who's on the other line, and better that they know each other and have some history so they can, when conflicts do emerge, they don't go forward. President they don't Biden, think they don't spiral out of control. Right. right. President Biden, though, is obviously going to be focused the next year, really putting foreign policy to the backseat because he has to focus on a re-election campaign. And I want to read to you a little bit of what Jonathan Martin, Politico's senior pol political, uh, political correspondent, said. He said, the best service you can do, Mr. Rahm Emanuel, is come back to the United States and chair Biden's re-election campaign. He actually said that George H.W. Bush waited too long to bring James Baker back to do this. Is that in your future? Do you no. plan on potentially leaving Tokyo and coming help Biden get reelected? I was honored by President Biden to serve as U.S. ambassador. I want to see my mission through. I'm very happy. Thanks for Jonathan Martin to make me, to literally have to answer this question. That said, I'm doing, I enjoy this job. I've enjoyed all the jobs. I serve at the behest of the President of the United States, but I am very much uh, committed intellectually, politically, emotionally. I really enjoy what the work that we're doing and we're making history as you saw in Camp David when the Japan and ROK got together. As you saw, as Japan's now gonna go from the ninth largest defense budget to the third largest. They're getting capabilities like uh, tomahawks and counter-strike capabilities. So to me, this is very important work and I serve at the behest of the president and I'm gonna continue so, to serve So you're that. staying put and no one has told you to tone down your tweets. I, I, you take a look at it. every time I continue, nobody's told me to, to tone down. It wouldn't be successful to tell me to tone down. And the continuation, like I'll deal, we're dealing real live now. Classic example of what I think is a, a real problem. China has banned all the fish from Japan, which they have a lot of fish uh, that comes from Japan that goes to China. Yet, having banned it, China continues to fish in Japan's EEZ and use that same fish. So that hypocrisy does not have a place in the international economic system. You could either be responsible or you can use raw power, but we're going to enforce the rule of law. That was Rahm Emanuel, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern on the sidelines of the APEC Summit in San Francisco. And coming up, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, says things are getting better, but we're not done inflation fighting just yet. You're listening to Bloomberg Best, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, a lot of second guessing about where interest rates go from here. Yeah, and you can add Jamie Dimon, Ed, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, to the list of those who think the consumer price index numbers for October we got lately indicate progress on inflation. But he also says that we're stuck with rising prices for a while longer. 
Here's Diamond on that and also on where he thinks the economy is headed. Also, his thoughts on fintech and investing in Mexico. And he spoke with Susana Saenz on our Bloomberg television affiliate in Mexico City. And Diamond starts here with the Fed and his reaction to those inflation numbers. I think inflation is probably a little stickier than that shows. I think they're, I think they do, they're doing the right thing to pause for now. You know, they've raised rates a lot. You know, to wait to see the effect on the economy in the U.S., particularly as the fiscal spending, uh, the excess fiscal spending is winding down and quantitative tightening is kicking in. But I still think, you know, you should prepare. They might have to do a little bit more. And I think people should be prepared for that just as a kind of a risk management uh, tool. And I'm afraid inflation may not go away that quickly. Okay. And, well, also Fitch ratings downgraded U.S. credit rating, and we saw Moody's changing its outlook on the U.S. credit rating to negative, pointing to a sharp rise in debt servicing costs and political polarization. What do you expect in these terms? You know, I, look, I, I find it a little ironic that Fitch and Moody's are doing that. Mm-hmm. So here's what I think. They are right to point out those issues. I would take polar, polarization off. That's, that's always been true okay. in a democracy. But yes, we have far more debt, more debt financing. We've been a little profitable when it comes to that. But the market is pricing us as AAA, which I think is more right. And the market will be more right than the rating agencies. I also want to point out, I find this almost funny, they have a lot of countries rated AAA. They all live under the protection of the American military. And so I think it's a little peculiar that that makes them AAA, but not America. So uh, America will be fine, we, but we've but we got to get our hands around these problems. They, they will not age well. The deficit's a lot bigger this year than we thought. There may be consequences of that. And so I, do, I think they're right to point it out. Okay. And talking about your bank, Jamie, how would you sum up this year 2023, given that it was such a tough time for the broader industry? You know, I, I don't... I don't look at any one year like it's a mystical thing, you know. <laughs> I always tell people the profits are like the tip of an iceberg is bobbing in the ocean. You know, the real quality of your company is your people, your systems, your technology, your products, your services. So we had a good year financially. You know, I know that some banks had some problems. We've been quite clear we're over-earning. But to me, the important thing is that we're going to serve our clients through thick or thin. We've got plenty of capital, plenty of liquidity. We're not going to panic. No matter what happens in the environment out there, we're going to be in Mexico serving your clients, your country, uh, the way we should be. And, you know, I think if rates – and, I'm, I'm, look, I'm hoping that the first Republicans we bought was probably the last domino. But I've always said provided rates don't go up, we don't have a, a recession. I do think banks are being prepared for that. That's just, a, that's just a reasonable, thoughtful risk management tool. Be prepared for things you don't expect so you can continue to build your company. How to prepare for the things that you don't expect? You, when, the way we do it is we model out you know, how we would do with 2% interest rates and 7% interest rates, how we would do with credit losses going up, stress testing markets around the world. So we do like literally 100 stress tests a week. And so always looking at that so we can manage through that. And that under all those circumstances, we're fine. Fine means to me that you don't have to announce massive layoffs. You don't have to, like, pull out of a country. That you continue to meet the commitments you have to the people in the country and the the countries themselves. You know, people don't like banks who are are fair-weather friends. And so, you know, we're going to be there for people uh, all the time. And, you know, we've always been careful how we run the bank. Okay. Jamie, we have a question from the audience of a big fan of yours. He says that if there is really a future for fintech startups, or will they be outlasted or out-innovated by banks? 
Yeah, I think it's the wrong way to look at the question. Like it's a binary answer. Mm -hmm. you know, we, there, there will be some who will not survive. There will be some who are very smart and they have a great niche idea. There will be some who are more than that. You know, so JP Morgan, we look at all the fintech. We also look at the big tech. You know, we have competition effectively from Apple, Google, Facebook. And so there will always be survivors. And you know, our job is to make sure we're lean, we're mean, we're thinking, we're competitive. We're not, it's always better to assume that some of these people be successful than to assume that they won't be successful. And you know, I've, I've pointed out to our own management teams that there's some great companies out there that we could have built and we didn't like Square and Stripe. And so you've know, you got to be open-minded and a little humble about uh, what's going to take place. Your size alone is not going to make you succeed in the future. And if you don't believe me, read about the history of all large corporations. Okay, and which are your perspectives of fintech for Mexico and the region? My view is you're developing a tech sector here, including fintech. Like, you know, in the old days, a lot of the technology was taking place in you know, Silicon Valley or in Boston, but now you see it almost everywhere you go. There are tech and fintech companies starting to blossom, and I think it'll be great for all the countries that it happens in, and it's happening here too. Well, and also I would like to ask about Mexican economy. Which are your, your perspectives with high interest rates, high inflation, but with the opportunity of nearshoring? I think it's a great opportunity. And, you know, the, the, a lot of Latin American countries raise their interest rates rapidly, quickly, and they probably did the right thing for the long run of the economy. You have very low unemployment. You know, inflation is coming down, so hopefully you'll conquer that. I think countries should always look at, and I, I really mean this, like I do with a company, what, what should they be growing? And, you know, I think we've undergrown in America, you know, quite a bit over the last years. And I think Mexico should aspire to do much more. And to do more, all these countries, all of us, you know, it's about policy. And you've already mentioned infrastructure, but it's about work skills, effective regulation, transparency, corporate governance, uh, you know, rapid permitting. Uh, it's all those things, you know, consistency of law that have a country grow. And the important part of having a country grow, it helps all of the citizens. There's more taxes. You have more wherewithal. You know, it's not just for big companies you want to grow an economy. You really want it for everybody. You know, every job created, you know, every job created is a job for someone. And so... You know, people, we, need, we all need to be very thoughtful about how we can grow our economies to help, and we should do it to benefit all the citizens of our country. Tell us what brings you here. You met with the top businessmen in, the, businessmen in this country. What was your conversation about? You know, Mexico is a critical market for us. We've been here for 120 years. We've been all over Latin America for well over 100 years. We have a total of 6,000 employees. You know, we bank like 1,300 companies. We bank governments and uh, And it's always critical to remember when you go on the road how much you learn. You know, first of all, you're learning from your own people, you're learning from your clients, learning from CEOs. So at dinner last night, you know, we spoke a lot about America, uh, Mexico relationships. For example, I'd forgotten that the USMCA deal needs to be reaffirmed. We should start working on that today. Uh, also, we talked about nearshoring, what the huge opportunity it is to have a nearshoring, you know, bringing more business into Mexico and America because of what's going on around the world. I mean, you, you should keep in mind, Latin America and North America and South America, they're kind of like seas of peace and tranquility in the world you see today, and that's an opportunity for them. How attractive do you see Mexico to invest? And talking about uh, nearshoring, a lot of businessmen talk about the challenges uh, for this phenomenon, like infrastructure, security. What do you see? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at just JP Moore, we invest for the long run. We've doubled or tripled our capital here in the last six years. We cover more clients in private banking, investment banking, 
uh, asset management. So our commitment is total. I think it's one of the great opportunities. I'd put Mexico, you know, if you had to pick a country, this might be the number one opportunity. And remember, you already have very capable companies here, universities, infrastructure, technology. So of course, when you talk about, you know, what you can do to do more, you know, the better you do with infrastructure, the better you do with, you know, uh, affordable energy costs, the better you do with universities, the better you do with good policy, it'll be better for that. But you already have a lot of it. You already have companies moving more operations here, et cetera. And, uh, and I'd add security, which I think is a mutual problem for America uh, and Mexico. I hope we're working on them together because, you know, the more we can solve that, the better is for both countries. But of course, there are problems, still huge opportunities. And that was Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, with Susana Science on our Bloomberg Television affiliate in Mexico City. And coming up... Ken Griffin, founder and CEO of Citadel, on the Fed and U.S. debt. You're listening to Bloomberg Best, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And the Fed, of course, very much on investors' minds as we careen into the holiday shopping season with inflation easing, sort of. But now interest rates and higher borrowing costs are hurting the holiday spirit for some. Yeah, sort of. It's right. That's right. But it may not be easy for the Fed to change direction, according to some. Citadel founder Ken Griffin, for one, Ed says even as inflation starts to ease, the Fed risks its reputation if it turns around and cuts interest rates too quickly. I shouldn't laugh about that, but it just a lot of conversation about this, a lot of arguments. Absolutely, Denise. He also shares his outlook for 2024, including why he thinks companies may be faster to fire employees this time around. Yeah, that's a little bit ominous. And here's Griffin on all that, including interest rates and a possible cut from the Fed in a wide-ranging interview with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic at the inaugural Citadel Securities Global Macro Conference in Miami. Let's listen in. The question is, heading into next year, how fast do we cut? So if, if you look at where inflation is likely to print over the first half of next year, and unemployment's likely to head to somewhere in the low fours, you're going to have monetary policy that's too restrictive under those circumstances. Now, the, the key, from my perspective, is the, is the Fed needs to stay on message that they're going to put the inflation genie back in the bottle. And so if they, if they cut too soon, I think they risk losing credibility around their commitment to a 2% inflation target. So you know, the market's pretty optimistic that we're going to head into an easing cycle next year. And I think the Fed needs to balance that with making sure they're able to stay on message that they're committed to a 2% target. That all speaks to tighter financial conditions to the extent that there are more things that could break in this environment. What else breaks? What else breaks? Are you looking for the next Silicon Valley bank? I story? sure am. <laughs> so the, the risk in the banking system still lies in credit risk in middle tier banks. And in particular, their exposure to commercial office is, is a big risk factor, less so their, consumer, their exposure to midsize enterprises. 
I mean, to be clear, to be a, a mid-sized bank today is a really tough place to be. The market for deposits is becoming increasingly competitive. The cost of compliance has soared over the last decade. The amount of technology that the consumer expects you to bring to bear to solve their problems comes with a pretty hefty price tag. It's a really tough place to be today as a, as a community bank or as a, as a mid-tier bank. And now you've got not only those headwinds of costs and expectations around customer service and customer experience, but you've got a credit cycle unfolding. So I think that's where the risk lies today within the banking system, first and foremost, is, is in those mid-tier banks. Now, does the Fed get to where they need to go without causing a deeper recession? Now, you've said before, pretty recently, that you would expect a recession at some point. Uh, and so well, I will be right on that eventually. Eventually. <laughs> I mean, every economist is at some point right on that call. So instead of asking you when, I'm going to ask you what it looks like. So here's, here's our best guess. Our best guess was sometime late this year. Uh, it's November. So we're going to be wrong on that guess. Q2 right now is, is roughly the center point of our distribution as to when we're likely to see the United States in a recessionary environment. And I think, I think there's a couple of really important questions that will come into bear at that moment in time that should influence one's view as to how deep this recession is going to be. Number one is what's going to happen to fiscal policy in the United States. For choice, we think next year fiscal policy will not will not tighten that much. We're, we're heading into a presidential, presidential election. It's really hard for politicians on either side of the aisle to do what we need to do, which is to rein in our deficit spending in front of a presidential election. It's just, it's gonna be really hard politically to get there next year on that front. The second real question next year is how much will companies start to unwind the labor hoarding that we've seen over the last couple of years? Now, we're starting to see, for the first time, the unwinding of that labor hoarding. What we don't know is how, how much of that labor hoarding has taken place. And then what worries me, in a, in a hybrid work environment or work-from-home environment, the cultural or social contract that holds people together in a company is unquestionably weaker. I mean, we've all read about companies that have fired thousands of people on Zoom calls. There's no sense of, that's Jane, who's worked down the hall with me for years, and I'm going to go the extra distance to try to keep Jane employed here. It's like, here's the email to all, here's the video conference with a bunch of people, and goodbye. It's a very different moment in American employment history where I believe the bond between the company and the employee has become far weaker. And that worries me in terms of the willingness of corporate America to make cuts on their workforce that they just wouldn't have made at other similar points in the labor market cycle. You, is that you saying that the employment market will crack much um, more significantly than many are expecting? It could, is what I'm saying. It could. It's a wild card. So there's a lot to unpack here. We are going to go global, but we're going to start here at home because you've been pretty critical about the picture here for the fiscal situation in the United States. Um, I want to talk about the treasury market because it's behaving a little bit like a meme stock. It's one of the most volatile markets here. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I, I played meme stocks. <laughs> All right. So I, this I've is been not quite that journey. That. This is nothing like that moment in time. <laughs> You know, but it is quite volatile, and I'm wondering to what extent it does concern you that treasuries are moving around so drastically. So, I mean, first of all, the, the treasury market is moving around 
drastically in comparison to 10 years ago, five years ago, when we had extremely low inflation, we were consistently below our 2% target, and the government was involved in a variety of very aggressive policies to try to bring inflation back up towards 2%. It's, it's a very different world. We've come off the zero boundary in inflation. We've come off the zero boundary in rates. We're, we're in a market that for, for the trading of government bonds is a normal market condition. Like this is actually, this, I mean, it's a little more volatile than you might otherwise want it to be, but these are pretty normal, pretty typical conditions when you're in a full employment economy late in the business cycle. There's nothing about this that I would call in any way unusual or unexpected. I think what was more unusual was that all of us in this room went through such a long period of time with such aggressive government intervention in our markets, trying to encourage growth, trying to bring inflation levels up. So that was government intervention. What about the Treasury's management of how they handled the future fiscal load? You know, pretty recently, billionaire Stanley Druckenmiller had rebuked uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen for not doing more to finance the United States when rates were low. Uh, and she has since push, pushed back. But I'm wondering what you think about it. Well, with hindsight, we would have done really well with our trading. <laughs> Do you think they should have I done mean, anything? I, I, I mean, if I knew where rates were going to be today, could you imagine how much money we would have made if we'd taken a position on two years ago? So are and that's, you that's a bit of the same call that you know, is being levied against Janet Yellen. You can't cry over spilt milk. Of course, and I actually do believe he's right, we could have issued more debt at lower rates over the last several years. There's no doubt about it. And, and the, what's ironic is... D.C. is constantly concerned about the fragility of the private market sector. And one of the sources of fragility in the private market is the amount of short-term debt and the amount of short-term mindset that we have in, in how we allocate assets. So the amount of money that's on deposit with banks rather than being invested in seven-year or ten-year corporate loans. Everything that brings things shorter in term increases fragility. Bear Stearns went broke in a day because of the amount of funding they did overnight. All right, that's important to note. Ironically, the U.S. Treasury has been shortening its maturity as our debt's been going higher. You've been listening to Citadel founder Ken Griffin with Bloomberg Shanali Basak at the inaugural Citadel Securities Global Macro Conference in Miami. And coming up at more on the rising risk of U.S. borrowing. And we'll hear from Citadel's Griffin on that as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Best, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, growing focus on rising U.S. debt and the possible risk of U.S. borrowing to economic stability. Yeah, and we heard about that from Citadel founder Ken Griffin. Yeah, so here is uh, Bloomberg's Shanali Basak with Griffin on the important topic and on other risks as well at the inaugural Citadel Securities Global Macro Conference in Miami. Check this out. One of the big problems is you are seeing a fracturing of what it looks like to be issuing the longer dated securities. And with foreign buyers 
less willing to step in, what do you think this means for the ability of the United States to finance itself? Well, at some point, we need to actually take the message that's being delivered to us there and put our fiscal house into order. I mean, that's what the market's telling us. The market is telling us that we cannot run annual deficits of the magnitude that we're running, that we need to put our fiscal house into order. That's the message being delivered by the market. Us pivoting to issuing more and more short-term debt means that if there were a day of reckoning, the degrees of freedom that we have to navigate that crisis are far more limited. Now, there are a lot of people in the market who believe that with foreign buyers stepping back, that the marginal buyer is the levered hedge fund, people like Citadel, um, and the American public becoming increasingly active as buyers of treasuries. Would Citadel step in in a bigger way to buy more treasuries into next year? Well, let's just be very clear. The marginal buyer of treasuries is gonna have to be American savers. No ifs, no ands, nor buts. And that's gonna crowd out investment that American households would otherwise make in corporate bonds, equities, and other assets that contribute to the productive growth of our economy. Like That's where we're gonna find the marginal buyer and it's gonna come at a cost in terms of our ability to create jobs and to enjoy a level of innovation and productivity that has defined so much of the life that we have lived in this country over the last century. Are there limitations, especially as bank balance sheets shrink into next year, for how much you can step in? So there's, a, there's quite a bit of chatter today about the bond basis trade. And I've, I've never seen so many people fixated on such a trivial problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually just bewildering to me. You're a, a significant asset manager. You have a, a portfolio that's tracking a, a, a fixed income benchmark, part government bonds, part corporate bonds, part mortgage-backed securities. And you want to optimize the return for your investors. I mean, that's what, that's what asset managers do. We're here to create alpha for our end investors. And so you look at the treasury part of your portfolio and you go, you know what? I can sell my treasuries replace that duration risk with a treasury futures contract and invest the money in corporates and other interest-bearing assets and free up that cash to put it to a more productive use in the economy holistically. The hedge fund community buys those treasuries and sells the futures contracts to the real money community. It's just that simple. So the reason I'm asking this is because with this great attempt to clamp down on the basis trade by regulators, would that really constrain how much uh, hedge funds are stepping in to buy treasuries at, just as they're being issued? Well, I mean, here's, here's what's going to happen. The cost of doing that trade for the real money account will go up. So the return hurdle they need to earn to move from treasuries into corporates will go up which makes the cost of capital higher for corporate America, which reduces economic growth, all right? The trade will end there. The trade will end by, by real money managers committing less money to corporate America. That's what's gonna happen here. The hedge fund community, in some sense, just provides intermediation between access to the short-term funding market, which is extremely efficient, and access to the longer-term borrowing market, which is far more, balance sheet constrained. That's what's, that's what's gonna happen here. And there's no doubt, like, the federal government can readily end this trade. And they may just choose to do so. And they'll do so at the expense of the American taxpayer to the tunes of, of tens of billions of dollars of interest costs. And they'll do this at the expense of American companies and raise the cost of capital for corporate America. I mean, they, they will probably do this. And you have been listening to Citadel founder, Ken Griffin,
with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic at the inaugural Citadel Securities Global Macro Conference in Miami. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Now stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Bloomberg.